This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now, Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? And now down to verse 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Then... Just as the Lord had said, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, since it is your right to redeem it and possess it. Buy it for yourself. I knew that this was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, and the son of Mahasiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and of all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Take these documents, both the sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. So some weeks back, we read a passage from 2 Kings about Naaman. And in that passage, the king of Aram, having heard about the healing powers of a prophet in Israel, sends a letter to the king. He, you know, he assumes that the king would keep somebody like that close at hand. Well, here, the prophet is close at hand. He does reside with the king. However, it is not so that the king can easily acquire his prophetic services, whether that's a miraculous healing or just a word of wisdom. First of all, Jeremiah isn't one for miracles. He just delivers messages. However, it's not because the king wants to hear those messages that the king keeps him on hand. No, he's in the king's custody. The king had Jeremiah arrested in order to shut him up. Not because it was against the law to be a prophet. No, there was a, at that time there was a real desire for a prophet, for someone who could deliver the word of the Lord. Because they were anxious times. Word had spread about the Babylonians, how they toppled one tribe, one nation after another. 
Some said they were an unstoppable force and they were making their way west and that put Israel in their path. Now there were those at that time who prophesied not to worry. The Lord is your God, they said. Do not be afraid. This, this is the land God promised to you. Our king, our king is a descendant of David, who God said would always be on the throne. And of course, there's the temple. It's God's own home. It's going to be all right. Just have faith. And there are, the book of Jeremiah does record prophets saying things along those lines. People found those prophets kind of reassuring. The king liked having those prophets wandering the streets, uh, proclaiming their message. But Jeremiah was not one of those prophets. And he was less popular as a result. To be fair, Jeremiah was himself not a big fan of his own message. He took no pleasure in saying what he had to say. There were, there were times, in fact, where the Lord you know, delivers the word to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says, are you serious? No, get somebody else. I'm out. But eventually he would. He would proclaim the word that he had been given. And not because he had a change of heart and said, all right, I, I kind of like this. No, he did not embrace his role. In fact, he became known as the weeping prophet. People were like, uh, okay, um, all the sniffling and sobbing is making you a little hard to follow. Did you just say uh, this toy buys baby's wand or destroyed by Babylon? Oh, ladder? Which one was that? Oh, boy, bummer. Um, well, okay, well, uh, I think I'm going to go listen to this guy. Uh, they call him the perky prophet. I'm just going to give a second opinion. But no one would have been happier for Jeremiah to shut up than Jeremiah himself. But he couldn't. And as Babylon drew closer, this became intolerable. The king had had enough, locked him up. But by the time we get to chapter 32, Jeremiah has been proven right. The siege of Israel has begun. Babylon's forces had gathered and were, were, had encircled the entire city. In other words, not a great time to be a perky prophet. Perfect perky prophecy business, it's a tough sell. Not that you want to have the weeping prophet, but it's not a great business to be in. But there, could, there are worse businesses to be in than perky prophecy at a time like this. For example, real estate, right? Can you imagine a real estate listing at this time? Three-bedroom bungalow with the rooftop patio offering panoramic views of the invading hordes. Located a few blocks from the market on a direct route to the hills, if the need should arise, to head for them. Cash offers only. You would think that the last person who would want to get into the real estate business would be the weeping prophet. 
the guy who had said this was coming. If anyone should have no invest, interest in investing in the land, it should be the guy who tried to tell everybody that this land is going to be taken from them. But he doesn't. You know, I, I cannot imagine what it, was, what it would have been like to live in Jerusalem at that time, to live in a city under siege. You know, to peek out past the gate and see this fighting force just biding its time. Uh, just like, you know, Jen and I have been watching the Ken Burns thing about the U.S. and the Holocaust. I, I, there's another thing. I just can't imagine being in the place of, say, uh, Anne, Anne Frankstad Otto. You know, he, he manages to get his family out of Germany. They go to the Netherlands. I think they're safe there. They tell the story in the, in, in the, um, in the documentary where they're sitting listening to the radio and how his face just went white as the reporters announced that the Nazis had invaded the Netherlands. I can't imagine what that had been like. And yet, and yet I think there, I think many of us feel as though we are in effect uh, under siege. The world we had known is, is being taken away uh, often invisibly, but it feels inevitably. In fact, the, the Pew uh, Research Center recently released a report in which they were trying to determine what point will it be that uh, Christianity will become a minority religion? Uh, and it presented various scenarios, and in one scenario they said it could be as early as 2045. In another, they said, maybe 2070. Now, 2070 does feel a bit weight of a ways off. Um, but you know, the Pew Research Center first started collecting data on people's religious identity back in 1972. At that point, 90% 90% of the American population identified as Christian. Now, I happen to have been born in late, uh, late 1971. Uh, so it may be, over the course of my, my lifetime, the U.S. will go from being a nation where 9 out of 10 identify as Christian to one in which maybe 3 to 5. That's a huge change. Now, of course, the Pew uh, Foundation is, was upfront about the fact that this, you know, this is all speculation. Um, you know, they talk about the fact that there is, a, you know, this, there is this trend where you, know, you have one generation and then the next generation fewer uh, identify with the religion of their parents. And then, you know, and they say, well, is that trend going to continue or will it get to the point where uh, maybe, maybe the trend is really that people just reject the, the religious affiliation of their parent, in which case maybe there was a generation coming that will embrace uh, being Christian because their parents uh, were, you know, had no religious affiliation. They don't know. And there was also the question of immigration. Uh, I see a large percentage of the immigrants coming to the U.S. now are Asian. Will that continue? And if so, what parts of Asia? Well, they come from parts of Asia that are primarily Hindu or Muslim or Christian. 
um, or will they too have no a religious identity, which is uh, the growing trend in the US? Point is, we don't know, we don't know. I don't pretend to be a prophet, and I'm skeptical of anyone who claims to be. That said, it is hard to make the case for optimism, right? The evidence points to a continued decline. So while I'm skeptical of anyone who claims to be a prophet, I'm more skeptical of perky prophets than weepy ones. Jeremiah, he prophesied doom. He suffered for it. He suffered personally. Again, he took no pleasure in pronouncing Israel's coming destruction. Uh, he'd have preferred to say nothing. Then he gets verses like this in chapter 4. He says, oh, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. And, of course, he suffers as a result of the response to that prophetic word. They lock him up. But when, it, when his words actually prove to be true, he doesn't take that as an opportunity to gloat. He doesn't say, ha-ha, see, I told you, jerks. No. I'm sure that, well, maybe that was a temptation, maybe it wasn't. But he shows no interest in going that route. Instead, when he could have been saying, I told you so, he says, no, it's, it's a them. I have a word of comfort for you. And not merely a word of comfort, it is a deed. He buys land. And this isn't just some optimistic uh, sign of optimism, right? You know, op optimism is so often just kind of this sort of disposition, a product of your own hard wiring. Some people have it, some people don't. Brains just have this capacity to kind of filter out the worst, to sort of create these blind spots. Not everybody can be like that. Jeremiah is not like that. He is not operating from blind spots. His eyes are wide open. He's filtering out none of the evidence. He can see the doom. What Jeremiah is operating from is not optimism, but hope. It's not a denial of what can be seen. It is an investment in what lies beyond sight. Yes, there's doom on the horizon. Doom as far as the eye can see. But that's all that a horizon is. It's as far as the eye can see. It isn't the end. This next chapter in Israel's story is going to be one of exile. But it is not the last chapter. There will be homecoming. And Jeremiah makes an investment in that. He buys property in the hope of that next chapter. He says, gather the witnesses, sign the papers, seal them tight, bury them deep. It is worth noting that Jer Jeremiah's own story will not last long enough to live into that next chapter of homecoming. His story will end here. His story ends in exile. But if Jeremiah were only interested in his own story, he would have never become a prophet. He'd have kept his mouth shut from day one. But he has learned to surrender his story to a larger story, to place himself, to place all his hopes in God.
Is that enough for you? I mean, you, you, do you, do you, can you be like that? Can you surrender your life, your story, and trust in this larger story? Uh, I can't. I need more. I need more than Jeremiah did. I don't know how he did it. I don't get it. The idea that there is a divine storyteller operating even when the sort of panoramic view of the world is one under siege. You know, even as the church is sort of drifting into obscurity, even as the climate gets more and more uh, inhospitable and we seem less and less capable of taking any sort of meaningful action, even when the consequences of something like success in Ukraine doesn't result in an end of the war, no, it results in an escalation. So I need more. I don't need to be told that there's more to this story than I can see, that God is somehow operating in all this. I need to see something. I need a God a bit more like Jeremiah, a God who makes an investment, signs the papers. And thank God that is the God we have. Jesus is God's investment. Jesus is God's signature. God signing the dotted line, the word made flesh. Hope in the form of, of, of land of property the story is not merely one that god looks down upon from some great height it is a story god is sealed within buried deep into it is god's own story and in the resurrection what we are seeing is we are getting a a hint of what lies beyond the horizon we are seeing the ultimate conclusion of the story the end that exists beyond the horizon comes into our field of vision. When we look at Jesus, we are seeing that future. In the resurrected Jesus, Jesus shows us a love that overcomes hate, a mercy that removes guilt and shame, and a hope that outlasts every dead end. Now, of course, Jeremiah was right. There was another chapter to the story. Israel comes home, rebuilds its walls and its temple, and it enters this new chapter. And, you know, I think for us, it's easy to see the story of Israel as sort of this one story, but it actually is quite different. Second Temple Judaism is quite different from First Temple Judaism. In First Temple Judaism, you know, that story revolves a lot around the temple, but the monarchy... uh, and uh, on the prophets, that's how they, you know, how God communicated the story to them. Second Temple Judaism, there's no monarchy, uh, there are no prophets. They have the text. They they become very much book oriented, and of course, also the, the, the temple becomes central. It creates very, it's sort of a different dynamic to uh, the story. That is also uh, consistent with what we see in the Gospels. Right? The new chapter begins with the resurrected Christ. And it's, it's Jesus. And one of the things that you find when you look closely at those passages of the resurrection, something's different. Something's different about Jesus, right? Mary does not recognize him right away until she hears her name. Uh, the, the, the couple on the road to Emmaus, 
don't recognize him until he's known in the breaking of the bread. You know, it's after Jesus shows Thomas uh, the wounds that he says, my Lord, my God. And then he sees the connection. Um, you know, I think that's, that's worth keeping in mind that new chapters aren't just repeats of old chapters. Because I think we find ourselves at the, what appears to be a, a conclusion, appears to be the conclusion of a chapter, right? The, the world has changed. And yet, our response has to be like Jeremiah's. We are still called to invest, to say that, okay, even if this chapter's ending, we, this story is not over. We invest our money, we invest not just our money, but our, our energy and our imaginations, the whole of ourselves are to, to be an investment, a, 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 to bear witness to a hope that goes beyond whatever dead end we may be, find ourselves on, uh, in front of. We don't insist that future chapters look like the past. Again, resurrection is not merely resuscitation something new, something different, still connected. It's a different chapter, same storytelling. You know, there is a sense in which when we gather here, what we are doing is we are, inviting to, we are invited to see ourselves as in Jeremiah's position. Every worship service, God is putting an offer out on the table asking us to get into the real estate business. Sign the papers to invest yourself in the kingdom of God. How that will all be play, how that will all play out in our lives, beyond our lives, we don't know. We don't need to know. God does not ask us to have it all figured out. He asks us to trust. We can be perky about it. We can be weepy about it. Do it in hope. Hope rooted not in our own investment, but in God's investment. The investment God has made in this story. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.